We are on class number six of our 16-week seminar of Healing of America. We are in section number two of our Charter of Freedom. Ditto. I hope I didn't scare you off last week with the Constitution, because I know that's one that it just kind of has to settle in your heart. You hear it, you don't quite get it, but you know, your Lord, here am I, help me to understand what I'm learning here and how it really even applies to me and my family and my neighborhood and community. So we're just going to let it sink and settle in our hearts the things we're learning about the Constitution, and it will not be your first time you're going to study. I hope you will study every day. I hope you will carry a little handy-dandy pocket of the Constitution around with you. If you don't have your manual today, just open to Articles 2 and 3, and you'll be able to follow along exactly with what we're going to talk about today as we are talking about, remember, there's seven articles, Ledge Sassar. Last week, we talked about the legislative branch Today, we're going to talk about Articles 2 and 3, the executive branch, that's our president, and the judicial branch, branch that's the court systems. So last week, we talked about, remember, uh, the legislative branch, how it's the preeminent branch because it's the voice of the people. That's where the government was going to der derive its power from us, the people the consent of the governed. That's how our government gets to operate. And this was really revolutionary uh, at that time in history because mostly people were being governed by the divine rights of the king. I am the king because God said I could be king. Therefore, I can do whatever I need to because I'm the king. And so this whole idea that, oh, the power is going to lie in the people to tell the government, you know, how to govern was, 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 revolutionary, no, no better word than that. So we talked about the structure of what the House is and what the Senate is and who impeaches a president, who convicts, which House does the impeaching and the Senate convicts, removes their compensation, their 20 enumerated powers, 20 and only 20, and how the legislative branch really has abdicated, given some of those powers over to the executive and the judicial branch or the executive and judicial have usurped some of those powers from the legislative and how we were supposed to have just kind of this perfect balance of power with certain checks and balances, but some new amendments that have come forth in the 1900s. And we'll learn about that in two more weeks when we, um, discuss amendments 13 through 27, how that's disrupted some of the balance of power and made this executive branch that we're going to talk about today so much more powerful than the founders intended. You know, um, mamas, the very purpose of the constitution was to protect families and the rights of families. Just think of the our 10 amendments, the right to religion. Our founders wanted families to be able to live by the dictates of their own conscience and to live their own values and not be forced to have to accept things that they found immoral. So that first amendment was supposed to protect the families and, and then the families are, can also protect themselves physically. The right to bear arms was amendment two and the right to privacy amendment four that you know no one can barge into our homes and tell us what they, we can and cannot do. And, and then there's um, amendments five to eight are all kind of protections if we're accused of wrongdoing that we haven't done. And then uh, amendments nine and 10 protect families from runaway governments that become too powerful, you know? And, and so our founders knew that the core unit that determines the strength of any society is the family. So they wanted to put forth laws that would protect um, and strengthen the integrity of the family. So if you think of the constitution as really written to protect families, then maybe you begin to realize why it's so important that we understand it and that we defend it and we uphold it and that we know it because it's a, it's a part of what's going to keep our families, you know, free to live the way we deem, you know, worthy and, and important to us. And so, you know, when you know that our rights come from God and that God has a right to define them, it says that in the Declaration of Independence that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson put that right in there, even though he didn't mention it in his, you know, little lecture on Monday, he put it in there. And so, you know, God's 
God's laws, the inalienable rights are God-given. They can't be transferred. They can't be taken from us are the thou shalts in the Bible. Thou shalt. And then that's how you know that's a right that comes from God. And the thou shalt nots are inalienable wrongs. And God does not protect inalienable wrongs. And it's interesting nowadays how we're legislating the inalienable wrongs. And we will not will not be worthy of protection from God when we legislate and protect the inalienable wrongs that we know. If you're reading the Bible, you know what those wrongs are. So, you know, instead of being in the word, so many people are in the tube or the TV or the social media, the government are looking to these irreligious entities or secular organizations to tell them, well, what are my rights? What can I do? What can I not do? And they're tampering with the original intention of the constitution that our founders gave us. And I remember our founders said this document was struck off by the hand of God. So they understood God's inspiration and in, in weaving and allowing the hearts and minds to come together and to write what they did. And so as we come together each week and we try and hash it out and figure out this constitution the next few weeks, it will help us to know, give us some talking points to, to talk about the constitution, that what is good and, and what needs to be repaired. And because you've heard me say this before, I really do believe that a repaired, a healed constitution will be one of the tools that God uses through us to heal his land before he comes. And so this is why it's important we understand this constitution. So here we go. We're in section two, uh, seminar two, articles two and three. Now I just have to do a true confession, mama. Uh, we just came back from a little travel last night and I knew I needed to study for my lesson. I, I try and study it every day, but the day before I have to do like a big push. And I just felt like watching a Sophia Loren movie. I mean, does it get any better than Sophia Loren? You know, I, in my former life, I think I was Sophia, or I like to think I was. So I found myself getting a bowl of ice cream and watching El Cid, which is actually a, a historical um, film about a real life Spanish hero. It was Charlton Heston in, in uh, the movie. And then Sophia is his woman. And, and if you read about him, he, he lived during the 1100s during the conflict between the Moors and the Christians. Remember, we talked about this in seminar one. So anyways, I kept thinking in my mind, I've got to get back to the constitution, but I didn't feel like being a constitutional mama last night. I felt like being Sophia Loren. And so I, I went to bed. I did a little brief uh, perusal and woke up this morning and hit it hit it hard so I hopefully this will all make sense to you we're just going to cover the highlights of this article two and three so you know it would be interesting to know how the founding fathers might react if we told them here are some 200 and you know 30 something years from the time they gave us the constitution that the executive branch has become the power center of the world. Remember, the founders' desire was to limit the powers of the federal government. They carefully spelled out what they could do and mostly what they couldn't do because they had just won a war from a really oppressive King George and they didn't want this kind of runaway federal government to exist like they had just come from in England or had known in England. James Madison, who we know is the father of the constitution, he wrote in uh, the Federalist paper. Remember the Federalist papers were these newspaper articles that he and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay would write after the constitutional convention and, and publish them in newspapers to help um, explain what this new form of government was. So the citizens and the states and the Congress people would eventually ratify this constitution. So James Madison says in this Federalist Paper 45, the powers delegated to the federal government are to be few. The number of individuals employed under the Constitution of the United States will be much smaller than those uh, uh, employed under the states. Ha, huh, wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't they uh, be disappointed to know that's not necessarily the case nowadays? When George Washington became president, he had 350 civilian employees to serve a population of 3 million people in our new little 13 uh, states. 
And today, and there in the book, it says in 2012, so 10 years ago, we had 1.8 million civilian employees serving a population of, it says 350 million. I think it's really about 320, 330, 320, 330 million today. So the government would have been, should, would have to have had at least 35,000 civilian employees to maintain the services at the 1790 level in 2012. But suppose, you know, with modern complex circumstances, maybe it would require 10 times more government workers than what President Washington had. So that would mean there would be about 350,000 workers. Well, that is, um, boy, wouldn't that be amazing, even if it was 10 times more, because what we have actually today in 2021 now it says here, since we have approximately 3 million government employees, that was in 2012. Now at 2021, guess how many employee, um, governmental employees we have? We have 9.1 million employees. 6% of the employee employment force of the US is federal workers. And how that 9 million is broken down, we have 2.1 million federal workers. We have 4.1 contract government workers. We have 1.2 grant employees, not quite sure what those are, and 1.3 active military. So that's 9 million. That is 300 times what uh, they had in uh, Washington's day. Talk about bloated. It's kind of how I felt last night after I ate almost the whole gallon of ice cream while I watched my Sophia Loren movie. Our government is bloated. The founders contemplated heavy responsibilities for our president in Article 1. It's important to know there are four sections in Article 2. I think I said Article 1. In Article 2 regarding the executive branch. Remember, there were 10 sections in the legislative branch, Article 1. There's only four sections that talk about what the president can and cannot do. And, and we'll go through some of these sections. They only intended him to do six things. Just like they intended the legislative branch, the House and the Senate to do 20 things, they intended the president to do six things, to be chief and commander, uh, chief of state over our population of about 320, 330 million Americans, commander in chief over our military force, we actually do have a total, <laughs> the numbers are a, a little off here, but this number is right. We do have about 2.5 million, so 1.3 active military, and then the remainder are reserves. And, and we actually have the third largest military in the world. China has the largest at over 2 million, then India, 1.4 million, and the US, 1.3 active military. So he's the commander in chief over our military. He's to be the chief executive officer of the executive branch, okay? He's to be the chief diplomat in foreign relations. He's to be the chief architect for needed legislation. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And he's also able to um, grant pardons and reprieves uh, if he feels that is necessary. What we have today under President Washington, he had four agencies. What we have now in the modern day executive branch, we have 15 agencies. He oversees the agriculture, the uh, Department of Commerce, the Defense Department, education, energy, health and human services, Homeland Security, Housing, Interior, Justice Department, Labor Department, the State Department, the Transportation Department, the Treasury Department, and the Veteran Affairs Department. And, and, and under those 15 um, agencies, bureaus, under those 15 bureaus, there are over 500 agencies. And within those 500 agencies, there is a total of 2,600 different groups. And so this is what he oversees. And you can see the power that he amasses because he oversees all these. Now I'm gonna give you a recommendation. This is your homework this week. It's only a 13 minute video, video and it's entitled, just Google it or write it down in your notes, the most powerful political office in the world, YouTube. So just type in, in your Google, the most powerful political office in the world, 
YouTube and up will come. It's 13 minutes. It's by the Thomas Jefferson Center. And it breaks down how he went from six duties to overseeing all these agencies and having responsibility for all of these bureaus and these programs and all the billions and billions of dollars that are at his disposal because all these things come under him and how unbelievably expensive it is that the government has gotten involved in all those things. It almost drives the cost up 100% when the government gets involved uh, with the private sector. And um, it also, you know, we know government agencies are just known for inefficiency and sluggishness and, um, and, and the power that this president has now because he's the CEO of all these agencies that he could use to intimidate Congress or states, poll in senators and say, look, I'll give you certain considerations or monies if you'll vote this way because he's now got this kind of power. And you'll also see in this little video, 13 minutes, how it's just humanly impossible for one person to effectively administer over all these things. And we're going to talk about in seminar three, how in the world did we give him so much power? Shouldn't states be determining their education or how they take care of their poor and their sick? I mean, shouldn't it, our founders intended, you know, limited uh uh, responsibilities to the federal government and all the others should be retained by the states and the people. So how in the world did this happen? So this is what, what our president is doing now. Okay, so let's turn to section one, the office of the president as chief of uh, servant of the people. So when the, when the founders came together, the whole question was because they didn't have an executive under the Articles of Confederation, they didn't have a president, they didn't have an executive branch, they knew they needed one, but they didn't want a king, they definitely didn't want a King George III. So, so this was kind of a contested issue how we were going to elect, uh, you, you know, a, a president. Um, James Wilson from Pennsylvania, he said we should just have one president. Randolph from Virginia said we should have three. New Jersey said we should have a bunch. And what should be the qualification? Should he have a certain educational background? I think they always wanted George Washington to be the first president. He didn't have any really, you know, he wasn't like a Adams or Jefferson, this extraordinary education at Washington, he didn't even know any languages. He didn't know how to play the violin. He didn't, you know, he appreciated music, but he hadn't graduated from college, hadn't gone on to William and Mary. And he, he was proficient in uh, arithmetic because he would go on to be a surveyor at 15 for, you know, uh, Lord Fairfax of Virginia out on the frontier. So they didn't require any educational background or property holdings, but it would take over 60 votes during that constitutional convention for them to decide on how they would elect president. And they finally came and decided that an electoral college would elect the president and the president's term, they decided should be four years. Initially, they said just a single term of six years, but um, they decided each term should be four years and that they felt that the term limits our founders felt should just be voting. If he's doing a poor job, just let the people vote him out of office. They considered that a term limit. And didn't George Washington set the perfect example for that because he served for two terms. He really didn't even want to serve that second term, but he felt like, you know, our new little country was too fragile. So he stayed in. And after his second term of eight years in office, he just stepped down. They didn't, our founders didn't want career politicians like we are seeing today. And, and when you know, it wasn't until after Franklin uh, Roosevelt died, he was going into his fourth term. He was, he'd served 12 years. And, and you know, we know under uh, FDR in, 18, in uh, 1933, he served from 1933 to 1945. Under him, he was the author of the New Deal, and he really left a big government legacy. So it was shortly after he died in his fourth term that uh, Congress put forth the 22nd Amendment limiting the executive branch to just two terms. 
And so the founders uh, considered different ways to elect the president. Should it be the House and the Senate that elect him? Should it be the governors of the state? Should it be popular vote? Or should it be electors from each state? And they decided on this electoral college. So in the original electoral college, each candidate from each state would come and they had two votes. So the states would put forth good men that they thought were qualified. Then the elector representing each state would be able to choose two men. And the first man who got the highest votes would be the president. And the second highest votes would be the vice president. This would change just a few years later when the founders put tweaked the electoral college and put forth the 12th amendment. So the president and the vice president could be on the same ticket. Because at that point in history, when they put forth the Constitution, they didn't anticipate that we would have a two-party system. They didn't anticipate we would have any parties. It would just be the best, best man would win. But what was happening right out of the gate almost uh, when Jefferson was elected the president, or um, when Adams was elected the president, Jefferson got the second amount of votes, and they were opposite beliefs. One was a Federalist, Adams was a Federalist, Jefferson was an Anti-Federalist. And then when Jefferson was elected president, Aaron Burr got the second highest votes, and, and Aaron Burr didn't like Jefferson at all. So the president and vice president were, were working well together. And so they put forth a few years later, this 12th amendment tweaking it saying that the president, and the vice president could be on, yeah, on the same ticket so that they would work together better. So how many electors can each state have today? The same number as the total of their state senators and representatives. So I live in Maryland. I have eight um, House members, and we have two senators. So we're allowed to have 10 people go and cast their vote um, uh, in the 1st of December. So how the state of Maryland um, went for Biden this year, so all 10 electors are beholden to vote 10 votes from the state of Maryland for Biden. So that is kind of how, that is how the electoral uh, process goes. And and it, each elector is required to um, vote the choice of his party, except for two states, Maine and Nebraska, because their electors go by districts. So according to how the district votes is how the elector um, should vote. So, you know, the electoral college, the framers just didn't have enough confidence in the average citizen. So they devised this electoral college so they believe that the states would be able to represent. So the people are to go vote and, and whoever wins the popular vote in that state, then the elector goes and represents the state as you know the majority of the people in the state wanted this person to win. And so, as I mentioned, it's, the, it's weighted in influence, it's weighted in influence is relative to your population and to your state size, depending on your representation. And, um, you know, think of it this way, the country is like a melting pot of social groups. And by giving each a unique say for each state, the electoral college fosters this individual interest that might otherwise be swallowed up in a winner takes all. So like, if it was just by the popular vote, all the major cities could win every election. So New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Philly would determine every election every time. And what typically the people that live in the city are usually non-traditional and more liberal. And so every, you know, few years when election time comes around, all the Democrats start talking about how they want to do away with the electoral college. But can you see how that would always ensure uh, the victories? And so this is some of the reason I, not some, the reason why they kind of came up with this idea of the electoral college. Now, the electoral college, you need to know girls, is not really operating exactly like the founders intended. It is, it is changed. And so, you know, it, it's actually possible for the popular, popular election to go one way and the vote in the electoral college to go the other way. And we've seen it in our lifetime. Um, Al Gore, uh, had the popular vote, but George Bush had the electoral vote. There's 538 electoral votes, 435 for the House members, 
100 for the Senate, and then three for DC. So that's 538 electoral, electoral votes. And you, uh, a candidate needs 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. So um, we also saw when Hillary and, and, and Trump, Clinton, Hillary Clinton and Trump ran, she had 200 more votes, but he had more electoral votes. So he won. And so um, if I could recommend Prager University has three really good videos on understanding the Electoral College. One is just one minute, one is five minutes, and one is 20 minutes. Because sometimes it's hard to explain in a real nutshell the Electoral College, because you have to give the history, you have to give how it used to work, you have to give how it works today. And, and sometimes we forget that. And so I would just pull up if someone ever asked you, I don't like that. I don't understand the electoral college. And we have this wonderful seminar, this Michael Maybach, who's going to start next Tuesday. And he will give an, about a 40 minute presentation for four weeks. But sometimes you just need a really condensed, easy way to explain it. And so I would really recommend, you know, if you're ever in a pinch and you have to explain that, pull up Prager University and there's a one minute, five minute and 20 minute. And you can just say enough to kind of explain why, you know, what the wisdom of this whole idea of this electoral system that our founders gave us. So who can serve in section one of article two as president? He has to be a natural born citizen. Um, and, and this is why, you know, President Obama, there was that flurry about, was he really born in Hawaii or was he born in Kenya? Because if he was born in Kenya, he wouldn't have qualified to be run for president. And this is why Arnold Schwarzenegger could never run for president. He was a very popular governor, but he was not a natural born citizen. You have to be 35 years old. You have to be 14 uh, years of resident living in the United States at that time. The president makes 400,000 a year plus 150,000 um, in um, uh, stipend for expenses and entertainment. And he does receive a retirement of a lifetime pension of 181,000 after he leaves office. President um, George Washington never took his salary. He declined his salary. He did not receive any compensation as well uh, during his eight years as president. I actually read that he received compensation for expenses he put forth, but never received, would accept a salary. And um, President Kennedy did that. And President Hoover did that as well. They were independently wealthy, so they wouldn't take a salary. And we talked last week, President Trump took the salary, but then he donated every paycheck to Veterans Affairs, National Parks, to schools, that kind of thing. And he's one of the few presidents whose um, income actually went down by 31% from the time he started in 2015 running for office. And when he left in uh, 2020, he had lost 31% of his wealth, 1.4 billion President Obama, after eight years in office, his net worth was 1.3 million when he started as president and he left office with a net worth of 40 million. So you can see if you play your cards right, politicians can definitely profit from their political connections and the founders did not want that as well. They wanted it to be your civic duty. You go serve, you do your duty, and then you step down. And so the president is required to take an oath of office, which he pledges two things, to faithfully execute his duties and to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So help me God, President um, Washington put that on his own when he was sworn in in the oath of office. And then that was officially became a part of the oath in, in 1862. So section two talks about he's to be the commander of the army and, um, and he can also issue pardons or he can commute or shorten sentences. President Trump, just before, it's always like the day they leave office, January 20th, President Trump pardoned 73 federal criminals and commuted 70 sentences. President, so about 140 people he granted pardons to both his last day of office. President Obama pardoned or commuted 330 individuals his last day of his office. Uh, President Trump uh, on his last day commuted or, or pardoned Steve Bannon, 
Lil Wayne, the rapper. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't really uh, do my research on why he commuted or pardoned Lil Wayne, but he also pardoned on Thanksgiving before he left office, um, three-star general Flynn, who I had a chance to meet about uh, six weeks ago, he and his family. And, um, and I could get into what President Flynn was accused or, or what he, he pled guilty to um, uh, contacting a Russian ambassador. And at, at first he didn't admit to that. And then he said, yes, I did actually have a conversation even though the, after the investigation, they didn't find any collusion or conspiracy from that communication that he had um, with the Russian officer or um, the Russian ambas ambassador. So President Trump pardoned him and uh, Flynn is living in Florida. He moved from Rhode Island to, to Florida uh, the last few months. So, um, and also the president can make a treaty, makes, he makes treaties with two thirds of the Senate having to approve that treaty because treaties supersede the constitution. And so this is why what presidents have done recent in recent years with these executive agreements with heads of foreign countries is troubling because an executive agreement is like an executive order that presidents make. They don't need the authorization of the legislative branch and they just kind of go around that legislative branch, which is unconstitutional. And, uh, and same with our, you know, executive orders that our presidents are making, they're sidestepping that legislative process that it says in the constitution that we studied last week, that there should be no laws made unless they're made by our, the people's representatives who we have vetted and put into office. So these executive agreements with foreign countries are dangerous and all it would take would be an act of Congress to say that they are not allowed to make executive uh, agreements with um, countries or executive orders as well. But the legislative branch at this point has been willing to abdicate some of this authority and allow the executive branch to do that. And so all they would need to do is just to issue legislation and act of Congress for that to stop. Um, section three, it talks about uh, the power of the president regarding Congress he and how he can address the people, the State of the Union. Thomas Jefferson always submitted his State of the Union addresses because he didn't like public speaking. He put a strain on his voice, he said. And even President Biden didn't give us a State of a Union address this year because of COVID. He did do the 100-day report. I don't remember that so much as that wonderful Congressman Tim Scott from South Carolina's talk after <laughs> the president's 100-day report. And, uh, and then it talks about how the president can veto uh, legislation that comes from the legislative branch, uh, but he can his veto can be overruled. Two-thirds of the House and the Senate um, can overrule his veto. So we talked a little bit about that. And then section three just talks again about, we talked about this last week, how a president can be impeached by, for treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. Remember, Trump was impeached not once, but twice. The first time in 2019, because they, Congress, uh, the House said he was pressuring Ukrainian officials to investigate Joe Biden while withholding military uh, aid. And, um, and so he was convicted, but he wasn't removed from the Senate. They didn't have the votes. Because remember, the House convicts and the Senate actually, um, or the House impeaches and the Senate convicts and removes them from office. Just like President Clinton was impeached for lying under a, a, um, oath about Monica Lewinsky, but did not have the votes to actually remove him. And then of course, Trump was impeached last year for the insurrection. Uh, my husband says, oh, the insurrection that began and started in one day, <laughs> you know? And so, and I, I, I have told you, me and my husband were there January uh, 6th, and that's our right to peace, peacefully assemble. Almost a million people were there. I've never seen a crowd that large. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for almost 20 years, and I've seen very large crowds. So I think it's it was very peaceable, uh, considering the amount of people. And when we got close to the Capitol that day after the president spoke of the White House, we definitely knew that there were some bad actors and players there that they definitely didn't look like, you know, 
uh, Trump supporters with their riot gear and their sticks and their gas masks. And, um, and so uh, he was impeached, President Trump, for this insurrection that they say he incited. And it's interesting to know that um, no one has actually ever been removed from office um, once they had been impeached. Now, President Nixon just resigned under the threat of knowing he was probably going to be impeached. So he just resigned and actually Ford would go on to pardon President Nixon. Uh, um, but anyway, so the executive branch of the United States government has now become really the power center of the world. And I hope you've been able to realize with all those bureaus and agencies and all the money that comes along with that, it's made the executive branch way more bloated and more powerful than the founders intended. And especially with, you know, uh, labor and business and bankers and tax exempt foundations and promoters of the UN and advocates of the one world government, global government, They've all tried to kind of capture this branch or infiltrate, get their people in the executive branch at certain levels. And I, I, I certainly think we see that with big tech and big pharma and the mainstream media and the World Health Organization. They all kind of got that executive branch at times in their pockets, so to speak. Okay, girls. So woo, we have, uh, let's try and cover this in 15 minutes, our due Judiciary. This is the third article, the federal judiciary system. Now, no federal courts, uh, federal system of courts had ever been specified or given its own branch in the history of the world before this point. Always the king was over the courts, so to speak. And so um, this was kind of new to them. They, there's, uh, I think, three sections under Article 3. The founders assigned to the federal system of courts 11 different types of disputes that the courts could hear, kind of like how they gave the president six, you know, responsibilities and 20 responsibilities for the legislative branch. They were going to give six different kind of jurisdiction um, over um, the, the courts to be able to hear certain things if they had certain uh, standing or jurisdiction that fell within these 11 um um, different types of disputes that the courts could hear. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting that the court session just ended. So it, it opens in October and it ends in June and they stop hearing cases in April. And it, it, they, for two weeks, um, they will hear at 11 o'clock, at 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, a one o'clock and a two o'clock. So they'll hear four cases Monday, I believe it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of, of each week for two weeks. And you can actually get tickets to go in and hear the oral argument. And then they hold 250 seats open for public visitors at the Supreme Court and you can get in and it's called the three minute line and they will shuttle you in and out and you'll be able to sit in for three minutes and just hear that. Now that was closed for COVID, but I, I bet that will open back up again. You know, the United States Supreme Court is what brought me to Washington, D.C. It's what brought me to my man that I would go on to be married to for 30 years and have seven babies with. I did an internship for the United States Supreme Court. I was a certified paralegal, and I always thought the law was so interesting as a young girl. And so I was getting ready to go on to law school, and I got this dreamy internship at the United States Supreme Court. And I would work down in the basement handling all the letters and you know, correspondence of the justices and I'd get to read their little personal letters and I'd work in the curator's office, but mostly I gave tours of the Supreme Court. So any kind of dignitaries from around the world, legislators, members of parliament, um, I would give a tour and I take them into the, you know, the courtroom and explain. And sometimes I'd even have the justices come. And if it was someone really important, I would give them my little spiel. And then I would, uh, Justice Thomas, I one time did a tour with him and Sandra Day O'Connor. Rehnquist was the chief justice when I um, interned at the United States Supreme Court. 
I'll never forget Harriet Connick's father was the attorney general of Louisiana. I took he and his group on a, a private tour. So that I have, I, when I think of the Supreme Court, I think that that's what led me to coming to DC, which led me to my sweetheart into the life that I have. And so, you know, the court is really interesting you know, anyone can go in now. There's a like a museum and a little cafeteria on the bottom level. Then the second level is the the you know the oral argument um, courtroom, which is fascinating. And and they'll let you peek in if court's not in session. Like this summer, I'm sure they have it open, and you can go visit the Supreme Court, girls. You definitely want to go to the Supreme Court. And then the uh, third floor is all the clerks' offices. One of my other little interns ended up marrying one of the clerks. We did we did date. I think I might have dated one of the security guards a time or two. Whew, I'm glad I dodged him. That would have been a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then on the very top, there's a basketball court, uh, the highest court in the land. They call that basketball court on the fifth floor of the Supreme Court building. So there are nine justices. They serve for life. President Trump has actually put in one third of the justices serving now. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Our chief justice is John Roberts, who was put in by Bush number two. And Thomas, um, uh, Clarence Thomas is the, the longest serving right now on the bench. He's served over 30 years. So Sharon Cray, we have a wonderful handout. Vivian, I don't know if you want to share that. So there's the president's cabinet. So put that under the executive branch. So that's everyone that's serving under President Biden cabinet right now, those 15 uh, secretaries of all those departments and their salaries and some interesting. And then a flip over Vivian to that other page. And this is all the justices, pictures of them. So Breyer was put in by Clinton and then the two women, Kagan and Sotomayor were put in by Obama. So it's interesting that even though Clinton served for eight years, he only put in two justices and only one of his justices exists now, uh, Breyer. And Breyer is the oldest justice right now. He's 83 years old. So he could go at any time. And so that would be the one that Biden would fill. So it would probably be another conservative, but really technically six out of those nine justices right there have been appointed by conservative presidents. Now I know the courts of, uh, they're in summer recess right now and we've been a little disappointed I have uh, with some of our, our, our rookies, our newbies uh, for not Speaking of when I wish that they had, I, I love Alito and Thomas. They're always dissenting and they're always saying, well, I think we actually should have heard that case and this is why. But um, so let's just look real quick at the 11 reasons why the courts could hear uh, and, and why it would be delegated to a federal court and not stay in the state courts. It would be a case involving uh, uh, the meaning or application of the Constitution, cases arising under the laws passed by Congress, cases involving disputes between the United States and foreign powers, uh, disputes between two parties. I'm just going down through some of these. Um, one of the reasons that they were supposed to hear was actually repealed by the 11th Amendment because too many citizens of states were suing other states. And so uh, the 11th Amendment, number eight, said, look, let, let those kind of disputes be heard in the state courts. So there's three levels of the federal court system. The federal courts, uh, federal cases are initiated in district courts. There are 94 federal district courts around the country. And those judges make $216,000 a year. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. One of my little girls who's like a daughter from another mother, she just graduated from law school. I've known her since she was a little baby and just been a part of our family. She's 28. She graduated from Georgetown last year. She got an offer uh, in a law firm in San Francisco for 180000 And because she's clerking for an appellate judge, they're going to give her a bonus, I think, well into the 200000 This is a little young thing straight out of law school. And she's just going to be making a little bit more than the district judge uh, who makes 216000 a year. Now, the judges every year do get a little increase. Like members of Congress, they've had the same salary since 2009, and the president has had the same salary. But the judges do get a little a bump up because good legal minds get paid a lot of money. So they are doing a, a civic duty here 
uh, by by only taking this kind of salary. But but the district courts really were supposed to prevent the Supreme Courts from being submerged by appeals. So the dis the district courts decisions really are the final decision for most cases. They really don't even make it up to the appellate level uh, circuit courts. So you have the, the district, then you have the uh, district, the appellate level. So the judicial circuit or appellate courts of appeal, there are 13 federal circuit appellate courts, and there's 179 judges uh, in those 13 uh, courts. And so about 10 to 15 judges sit in each circuit and they are um, for life and they make $229,000. So they're not rolling in the dough, a comfortable life, but they, in the private sector, they could make so much more money. And then the Supreme Court, there are only two types of cases that can be heard at the Supreme Court that can begin and end at the Supreme Court. Cases involving high officials of foreign countries don't see so many of those. And number two, where one of the states is party to the suit and the matter involves federal jurisdiction. So this is why we saw all these cases um, trying to be heard by the Supreme Court uh, when the election results challenging these election results because it, 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 it had to do with the state and it had to do with the federal jurisdiction. Now the Supreme Court actually um, if, if, it's, if it's happy with the lower court's ruling, with that circuit court's ruling, it just won't hear it. It just will uh, choose not to take up the case. So we saw the Supreme Court choose not to take up some of these election, fraudulent election cases that were coming um, out during in, and have um, during the election. So on an average, 7,000 to 10,000 appeals come to the Supreme Court every year. They only accept about 200 cases for further analysis, and they only actually hear about 100 to 150 cases. So to get your case even heard by the nine justices is really quite extraordinary and rare. And so they really intended the state Supreme Courts to be the highest authority to in interpret state law and administer in the state judiciary. And some of the appeals from state courts can uh, go on and, and be sought in the U.S. Supreme Court, and the federal courts can uh, overrule when they think that there's a federal question and they disagree. But typically, they just they will just allow that lower court's ruling to stand. Now, you know, I I think we were a little disappointed that you know, um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett. And Kavanaugh, who Trump just went to the wall to get, you know, his people in, didn't hear any of the cases that could have possibly helped President Trump. And, you know, you wonder, did they did they think that it, it they just didn't have standing or jurisdiction, that it should have been the states to determine their their election laws? Um, Thomas and Alito certainly thought that, you know, some of these states that were changing their rules about their elections in Pennsylvania right in the middle of the game, that wasn't good precedent for future elections. That's what Alito and Trump uh, talked about, you know, why they felt they should have heard some of the um, Pennsylvania cases. But, you know, no one exactly knows why or why not they will hear a case. And, and um, but when they do take up a case and when a decision is made, so five out of the nine justices have to vote in order for the one side to win in that oral argument. And we don't really know when they hand down the decision, but they have to um, do it within the time that the court is in session from that October to June before they um, convene for um, summer recess. And so all the cases that are argued during that term in the court have to be decided before the summer recess. And the attorneys, they submit legal briefs if the, if the case is taken up and, and it's a written legal argument outlining each side's point of laws, which they're gonna argue. And the justices have completely read the briefs. And so they're very familiar with the cases by the time these two little, you know, attorneys are now are going to present their case. And I've seen, I've seen these uh, attorneys uh, present and, and they're very skilled. They stand before a lecture and they only have 30 minutes apiece, 30 minutes on one side, 30 minutes on the other. There's a little lecture and light 
goes on five minutes before their 30 minutes is over and then they are cut immediately. And they do not argue any kind of fact or emotion because the justices are very well uh, uh, you know, familiar with the cases. They want to be persuaded by the points of law. And so I've seen the justices, the little attorney gets up to speak and he's interrupted 30 seconds into his, into him explaining, and they're not to read their brief. They're supposed to have it completely memorized and they will really pick their brains about how their point of law and, and they'll put forth certain scenarios. Well, how would it look if, how would this point of law work if, and they expect the, you know, the attorneys to win them over and, and to, and to show how, the point of law that they're arguing how that would apply around the country and what it might look like. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating to watch that. And so I would put that on your bucket list to go to the Supreme court, take a tour of it and sit in on oral argument at, at some point. Okay. All right. In section two of article two of the judiciary, it talks about uh, criminal cases. You know, uh, it was so important um, in the seventh amendment uh, of, of our Bill of Rights that people that are accused would have the right to a jury because that the, the people that were accused under England, I mean, they were thrown in the dungeon and had to live there the rest of their life with no kind of recourse or um, jury or anything like that. And so in 1885, there was a, a case that, that the, the, the Supreme Court, Court ruled on that excluded the jury in criminal cases from determining the law. I mean, this is exactly what the founders wanted, but the Supreme Court in 1885, Sparf versus the US said that uh, the jury couldn't really determine the law. Maybe they, they didn't feel like they were qualified to determine the law. And it, it, it would serve to greatly weaken one of the safety nets that the founders had provided to protect the rights of the accused. And Jefferson would go on to say, if the constitution can be changed at the decree of a judge, that it will just become a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, which may twist and shape it into anything they please. Hence, the purpose of the constitution would be defeated. There'd be no reason to even have it. And so our founders knew that they did not put enough checks and balances on the Supreme Court. They were so intent on putting checks and balances on the executive branch and on the legislative branch. So what we've seen begin to evolve through the years is uh, this uh, justice that is more of a judicial activist. They believe that the Constitution was written in broad and flexible terms and that the Constitution should evolve and it's a living document. And you've heard me say, well, if you think it's a living document, why are you trying to kill it by misapplying the law or misinterpreting or misconstruing what the founders intended? And we know that, you know, the founders didn't write the Constitution to be broad and flexible and to change with the times. They wanted only limited and few power to the federal government. And if we didn't address it in the Constitution, then those issues were supposed to go back to the states to determine. So possibly, you know, if, if the Constitution is silent on certain issues, the founders wanted the states, the people in the states to figure out, you know, abortion or sexual orientation or immigration or possibly fraudulent elections. Maybe that's why, you know, Gorsuch, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh thought it was up to the states to decide their election laws and not the Supreme Court state, even though it did have to do with the state and a federal issue. And so, um, and, and so you have these activist justices and then you have these original intent justices and typically conservative justices want are more trying to discover well what did the founders actually intend in the constitution and they try not to impose new interpretation to the original intention of the authors and you know david barton of wall builders puts out such great books many of you've seen this book original intent the courts the constitution and religion this is i've read parts of this book this is a good book on you know um, originalists and 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 that notion of a an originalist versus a, versus a, an activist justice, and so I think the original intent 
justices are more in keeping with what the founders uh, intended. And so they wanted, they wanted uh, the justices to be guardians of the law. They didn't want them to make law. They didn't want them to legislate from the bench. They wanted them to protect and tell us what the law meant, what the founders meant, you know? And they were to interpret the constitution very strictly, it says in the um, Federalist Papers as the founders originally designed it. Jefferson would go on to say that the Constitution had not provided adequate checks on the Supreme Court in 1821, just a few years before Jefferson would die, as he was able to observe some of the dealings of the Supreme Court after, you know, 20, 30 years. He said the germ of dissolution of our federal government is in the Constitution of the federal judiciary, working like gravity by night and by day, gaining a little today and a little tomorrow, advancing its noiseless step like a thief over the field of jurisdiction until all shall be usurped from the states and the government. To this I am opposed because when all governments shall be drawn to Washington as the center of all power, it will render powerless the checks provided and will become as venal and oppressive as the government of King George. So our founders knew that they had not put enough checks and balances in this court system because, you know, look, we can, we can uh, overrule a president's veto or the president can veto legislation he doesn't like from the legislative branch, but we have no way of protecting and over, uh, you know, pushing back and protecting ourselves from an overzealous judiciary. The only check and balance we have on the Supreme Court is that, you know, the justices have to be approved by the Senate, so we could stop it there if there's someone really crazy and the president is trying to put on the bench. And we tell them the 11 things, disputes that they can hear. And, and also in the first article, it says we can impeach, uh, uh, you know, government officials for treason, bribery or high crimes and misdemeanors, but we've never done that to a justice. So we're going to learn in seminar four what possibly a check and a balance we could put on the Supreme Court, we could give them term limits. They could only serve for maybe two terms, maybe eight years like a president. And, and possibly why couldn't we override an unpopular decision that you know goes against what the nation wants? And, and look, we can override, you know, the president can override the veto and we can override the president's veto, but why can't we override, you know, um, decisions that would actually change the law and change the constitution from the bench. So that's something interesting to think about. So the very last section under the judiciary in um, article three just talks about treason uh, and what, what constitutes treason. It's just a betrayal of one's nation wanting to overthrow the government and to bring down the government. So this had really been a, abused by the King of England. Uh, he had done some terrible things in the name of treason. Remember if our founders had been caught after they signed the declaration had been caught by British soldiers, they would have been hung for treason. And so um, in the constitution, they really don't put definitive explanations of crime except for treason and they they just state here that treason is trying to um, to engage in war against your country or trying to adhere as an enemy to the u.s and giving and our enemies aid and comfort and those are traitors and and uh, we we really don't see too many prosecution of traitors have you heard of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg? They were executed in 1953 as traitors. And of course, the grand traitor, Benedict Arnold, uh, Benjamin Franklin would go on to say, Judas sold only one man. Benedict Arnold sold three million. And he, you know, went on to live really quite a, a horrific life. He, he fled for his life in England. And, and um, so if you study Benedict Arnold, good things don't happen to, to traitors. So, um, so treason is uh, addressed a little bit there under the judiciary. So there you have it, dear mamas. We, whew, once again, I always feel like I have to wipe my brow after I teach a lesson on the constitution. I gave you a lot. So please go back and reread it again sometime this week. So you can just lock it in your mind. Don't worry if you're, if you're not, if there are things that I said that you were like, I, I have a question. 
Remember, this is one of the greatest resources. It's $30 at the National Center for Constitutional Studies or about that same price if you want to get the student manual where you fill in the blank from the tjc.com. And it goes line by line. The um, founders tell you what they meant for everything they put in the constitution that they gave us, the seven articles and the Bill of Rights. And then it also covers all the other amendments that have come since the founders and gives an explanation uh, of, of those as well. It's, it's really good from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. So we discussed the duties assigned to the executive and um, outlined in article two and the duties um, and kind of the makeup of the judiciary. And um, for the founding fathers, these two articles finally settled some of the most difficult components of putting together this new federal government and their powers. They wanted this new government to be able to function more efficiently and effectively than certainly it did under the Articles of Confederation, but they didn't want to give them too much power to the executive and the judiciary. So they were just trying to find that right balance. So um, next week, we're going to talk about the last four articles uh, of the Ledge Sasser, the state's rights, how we amend the Constitution, what and makes up the supreme law, the land supremacy clause, and how to ratify it. It took nine states to ratify the Constitution, and they were off to the races. So, you know, this was really a masterful accomplishment, never achieved by any other nation in modern times. What they did is they began to form these three branches with the proper checks and balances and the separation of powers. And so um, by doing this, they wanted them to be able to function in a balanced way and, and should abuse occur, occur, they could nip it in the bud with the proper checks that they had on each other. So, you know, if you're feeling a little disappointed about some of the things that we're reading, I think President Biden is in Chicago today rolling forth uh, new legislation and spending, uh, it's called the family bill and it includes childcare. I definitely don't think child care, that word child care is mentioned in the constitution. I'm not sure, I definitely don't think that's a federal uh, responsibility. So you can see, you know, the executive branches because he oversees so much, he just likes to get more and more imaginative and creative, you know, and, and meddle in things that they weren't supposed to be. And I certainly I've felt a little disappointed in the last few weeks as these final decisions were coming out by the courts and how they were ruling. But, um, you know, just remember, if you're ever feeling a little too overwhelmed by watching a little too much uh, news or listening to the radio or, you know, social media or so forth, um, the best thing to do is, first of all, watch a Sophie Loren movie and eat ice cream. And then once you do that, you get on your knees and you pray, just like I did this morning. Lord, help me to be able to, to you know, think these truths that I'm going to teach in my heart and to be able to teach them in a way that might spark something in your mind and understanding a little bit more of our, our three branches of government. And, uh, you know, whatever you're feeling like under the gun or overwhelmed about, always my husband will say, sometimes I'm like, oh, I have so much to do, blah, blah, blah. And he'll say, Julini, just pray about it. You'll be able to do it. And it's so, such a simple concept just to get to your knees when you're feeling discouraged or overwhelmed or just tired and worn out, you know, just to, to pray and God will let you know the next right step. I mean, he might not give you the big from beginning to end solution here, but he will get put in your heart, in your mind, what's the next right step I need to take for this thing that's weighing heavy on my heart. And, you know, remember girls, as long as we keep looking to God, you know, for help and solutions and deliverance and not government, not well, president or Washington, D.C., as long as we keep looking to God, we're going to be in good stead there and, and keeping our little families close together. I love Gloria from Arkansas told us some of the fun things she did with her family in incorporating some of the things that she learned in seminar one in her 4th of July celebrations with her family. And that's the whole point. When we learn these things, we turn around and we have conversations with our kids. We teach them. We talk about it with the grands. We teach about it, talk about it with our adult children. We invite people to these lessons. And, and then we continue to learn from the viewpoint 
of our founders, you know, because remember only 15% of the constitution has kind of been altered. 85% is intact. And this will be the tool that God will use to heal our land. So we want to be part of those that know how to repair some of these parts, some of these things that have become unbalanced. And then as we do these three things, God will put into our hearts what to do next. What's the next right thing? Oh, it's it's our uh, online class today. I got to show up. That's my next right thing is just to keep learning for some of you. Some of you are now going, okay, well, I'm going to actually have a little cottage meeting in my house and have some mamas gather in my home for my neighborhood or my church or extended family members. And we're going to start to kind of learn teach these little 12 introductory lessons and just let God guide us from there. You know, as you do these, these four things, I really believe that your fear and your misgivings and your worry will turn to faith. And instead of feeling apathetic, like, Oh, I just need to watch one more Sophie Loren movie, then everything will be fine in my life. That's, that's kind of apathetic. Although I do, I do think we need a little downtime, but you know, the difference between people that are just not even interested and, and talking about, you know, ways in which we could heal our nation. Our apathy will turn to resolve. We'll be like, yeah, I, I got to do something. I can do something. And the despair that you might feel will be converted to hope. And you got a mama who is now full of faith and resolve and hope. And she is a stabilizing force in that home and a stabilizing force for those around her. And that's who you are. You are the stabilizers of society. God doesn't mess with the righteous mamas and grandmothers that are pleading out to him to know what to do, how to shore up and protect their children and, and protect their communities. He will hear and answer your prayers and he will bring people to you that can help you. And he will have you rise up and do things that you might not have otherwise felt you were qualified to do. So I just commend you for being here. This is no small ask on a hot summer day to sit down and try and hash through and figure out the constitution. So thank you so much. I just feel like I know and love you girls because we're here and we're here together learning together. So that is our class for today. We will see you next week. Um, I'm going to be on the road. I'll be somewhere on the road, but I will be teaching from the hotel room. You'll probably be on the road too, too, but you can always pull up class at the beach, at the lake, at the pool, wherever we are in this world that we live in today, we can still be a student and learning regardless of where we are. So anyways, okay, I will see you next week.